Amen. Please be seated. If you're an elementary age kiddo, you can head out these doors right here and turn to your right, and you will find wonderful Bible teaching there. You can, I'm blocking your way here, sorry. Breaking the fire code, probably. Okay, so, Merry Christmas. I'm going to keep saying it until people tell me to stop. I love Christmas. Um, I, I'm sad that it's over, which is part of what we're going to talk about today. So, um, it'll roll right into things. I do hope you're doing well today, and I'm glad that you're here. And uh, as the, the song we sang in the beginning, we really are in this in-between time. We're in the kind of the wake of after Christmas, and we're in the, uh, this kind of expectant hope for the new year. Looking forward to 2022. Feels like not long ago we were in 2019, and then we've had this weird two-year phase, and now uh, we are two years later. And I uh, don't even know what's going on still. So, but here we are. And we're going to talk a little bit about that today also in the reality that we have a king and we are members of a kingdom and that there was someone who's in control of all this mess. And uh, we get to worship him and we get to talk to him and he helps us. So let's pray and then let's dive into the word of God together. Heavenly Father, we come to you grateful that we can call you Father. Um, we worship the triune God, the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and we just come to you, we ask in your name that you would help us to understand Psalm 97 today. Open our minds and our hearts, that you would align our thinking with, uh, with, with your word, align our heart with, with your affections, and that you would, uh, through your Holy Spirit, teach and convict and correct and rebuke us and train us in righteous, righteousness. Help us to begin uh, this week and this next year celebrating the Christ who loves us, who came to save us, who died on the cross for our sins and rose from the dead, conquering sin and death so that we could trust in you and have eternal life. This place is not our home, Lord, and we often feel out of place. And so I pray that we would feel at home right now because this is where uh, you are worshiped and where your kingdom is, is praised. And so we thank you for the gathering of the saints where we can feel like we're a family and where we can experience the joy of worshiping our Savior together. So we look forward to your second coming, Lord. And until then, would you please help us and help us understand your word today. Uh, may we honor you. May we love one another well. In your risen and exalted name we pray. Amen. So we'll be in Psalm 97 today. That is, uh, I'm on page 458 in my book. So if uh, maybe we'll get you there somewhere. Psalms are in the middle and uh, we'll be in Psalm 97. So I was talking to... Uh, Two of our kids, our middle, middle two kids, this week about, uh, they, they love Christmas, right? And so they, there's this great buildup, this great anticipation. But then they were sort of dreading the day after Christmas, which is today. And just because of the letdown, there's no more what's coming. And so uh, we were talking about, well, what do you do after that? And in the discussion, we came upon the reality that, well, you're anticipating these gifts and this celebration and all this funness, if that's a word, and you... But then it happens, and it's like, well, now what? And there's a lot of things in life like that. There's, there's weddings, there's, there's things that you all this build up to a wedding, and then, well, what are you supposed to do after Christmas? Well, you're supposed to then enjoy the gifts, right? Like you get toys, or you get a gift card, or you get a whatever, and then you get to go and enjoy the gift. And so, obviously, Jesus is the greatest gift that humanity has ever received, and Christmas, we celebrate the Lord, his, the, the Father giving the Son as a gift to mankind to redeem them. So what are we supposed to do after that? So it came to mind, well, we're supposed to, after celebrating Jesus, like, let's enjoy him. And so, like, the Westminster Shorter Catechism asked the question, what is the chief end of man? Why are we here? Well, we have an answer to that. 
It's to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. It's really not complicated. We're supposed to glorify God and then enjoy Him forever, which means some things. And so I started, I was reading Psalm 97, and of course things pop out, and here comes the sermon. But the, we're going to look at answering that question, what does it look like to glorify God and enjoy Him forever? What's it look like to enjoy the gift of a risen Savior? What's it look like to enjoy God? And I thought it was a great time to, in the wake of, of Christmas, and in this in-between time of this New Year celebration, what are we supposed to then do with this great gift we have in the Lord? So, with that, let's read through Psalm 97 and see what the Lord wants to teach us. So, the Lord reigns. Let the earth be glad. Let the distant shores rejoice. Clouds and thick darkness surround him. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of his throne. Fire goes before him and consumes his foes on every side. His lightnings light up the world. The earth sees and trembles. The mountains melt like wax before the Lord, before the Lord of all the earth. The heavens proclaim his righteousness and all the peoples see his glory. All who worship images are put to shame. Those who boast in idols, worship him, all you gods. Zion hears and rejoices and the villages of Judah are glad because of your judgments, O Lord. For you, O Lord, are the most high over all the earth. You are exalted far above all gods. Let those who love the Lord hate evil, for he guards the lives of his faithful ones and delivers them from the hand of the wicked. Light is shed upon the righteous and joy on the upright in heart. Rejoice in the Lord, you who are righteous, and praise his holy name. Amen. So, this psalm is, there, we're not given a, uh, a superscript here, don't know who wrote it. And a lot of times they don't know who wrote a psalm, they just say David, I don't know if David wrote this, but somebody wrote it. And they're writing, and of course psalms are poetry, and they have a structure to them, like poems or like lyrics to a song. And this one is structured with this, this first verse, the Lord reigns that the earth rejoice and be glad. And this last verse, rejoice in the Lord, you who are righteous and praise his holy name, is almost sort of a bookends, maybe the wrong metaphor, but um, stacks. Let's do bookends. Uh, the kind of our sandwich. They're the bread of the sandwich, right? And then you've got like your meat and your cheese and your lettuce in the middle. I just, I just made that up. It's a terrible analogy. But a psalm sandwich, um, let's not go there. But um, that's where we're at. There's a structure to it, right? Like a sandwich. And so we can keep rolling down that track. But you've got a structure that starts with the Lord reigns, let the earth be glad, and let the distant shores rejoice, with rejoicing being one of those foundations. And it ends with rejoice in the Lord, you who are righteous. So those really are the things that sandwich this psalm together. And then we're going to look at uh, verses 2 through 5, excuse me, 2 through 6, and then verses 7 through, uh, through 9, and then uh, really 10 and 11 and 12 kind of gets rolled in there. And breaking the, down the structure, what the psalmist is instructing us to do. And we're going to do that first with this idea of, of how can we enjoy the Lord this next year. And, and this is obviously not, it's not some magic formula. It's just what I'm reading out of the psalm and pulling out of it, right? But we can do four things. We can proclaim his kingdom, which is going to be in verse 1. In verses 2 through 6, uh, we can wonder at his majesty. In verse 7 through 9, we can worship him alone or exclusively. And finally, we can love what he loves. So let's get into it here. The Lord reigns. Let the earth be glad, let the distant shores rejoice. So I put proclaim his kingdom because the reality is that we, we worship a king. Jesus is the king of all creation, right? The Bible is as clear as a bell on that. And we worship him. And it says the Lord reigns. Not that he's waiting to reign or that he's going to reign later. Or that he, the Lord is the king of the earth. There is no other king of creation. It's him. Now, he is currently allowing people to make a giant mess of things. But he is still the Lord. 
And so why does that matter? Why does it matter that we proclaim his kingdom? And what does it look like for us to do that? Well, this says proclaim uh, the Lord reigns, let the earth be glad. The earth can mean a lot of things here. It can mean like the, the creation or the ground. It can mean the inhabitants of the earth. And it says let the distant shores rejoice. This is this idea of Jerusalem is here and there's these people in these long, far-flung islands way off, the ends of the earth, right? So the Lord reigns, so let everybody here to the ends of the earth do what? Rejoice or be glad. Why, do, why can we be glad at his reign? Because someone has to be in control of this thing. It's not me. I guarantee you I would be an awful God. I can't even manage my own life most days, much less all of humanity for all of time. But there is a God who is in control of this giant mess called history, life, time, humanity, the earth, you name it. Put a title under it. If there's something you're worried about, God is in control of it. What about the whole mess with, the, with this virus? God is in control. What about all the variants? The Lord reigns. What about political upheaval? The Lord reigns. What about weird weather? It was 80 degrees on Christmas. The Lord reigns. How do we know that he reigns? Because the truth of his word tells us. It has nothing to do with what I feel or even what I experience. The Lord is reigning whether I experience that personally or not. It doesn't have to do with how I feel or even what I think. The truth is that this says the Lord reigns. And that means the Lord reigns. It means that he is on the throne and he is in control and we can trust in him. So whatever upheaval has happened, however Christmas was, whatever is going on in the world and in your life, you can trust that there is a God who loves you, who has come to save you, and who is in control. So if there's a crisis in our family, a panic or whatever, something catches on fire, somebody's hurt, whatever, uh, Jenny and I are married with one flesh. And in the, when there's a crisis, one of us is always in control, like sane, not freaking out. Sometimes one of us loses our minds, but it's never both of us, praise the Lord. It's always one of us. Is if, we're, if it's just me or just her, then that, that parent is like on. But if we lose our minds, if we freak out, the wheels come off, man. The wheels come off. If I freak out, my kids freak out, and now my kids are old enough to where if I start freaking out, they kind of call me back. They're like, Dad, snap out of it. We need you to, we need you to be dead. So I, uh, and I snap into it. But if I lose control, it's all over. If you think about that in any organization, it's like that. If the CEO loses their minds, the business, the wheels come off the business. If a, if a, if a pastor goes off the rails, the church hurts. If a, go, just work your way up. And we have a God who reigns. He is, there is, there's a Corey Ten Boom quote that says, there is no panic only in heaven, only plans. There is no panic in heaven, none. Jesus never panicked. He never hurried and he never panicked. When the, everything was falling apart, Jesus was reigning asleep on a cushion in a boat. And the disciples were losing their minds and Jesus stands up and tells a thunderstorm to stop. And it listens. That's who we serve. The Lord reigns. And how is it that we go about demonstrating or proclaiming his kingdom best? We're going to get to it in a little minute here as we work through the rest of the psalm. But the reality is that we best proclaim the Lord's kingdom by obeying his word, which isn't super fun, and it doesn't look good on a t-shirt, it wouldn't look good carved on something or stuck onto Instagram. We best proclaim his kingdom by obeying his word. Why? Well, how does subject in a kingdom best best demonstrate that they serve a king by obeying his decrees. King says do this, and they dutifully do it. We have a wonderful, kind, delightful king who reigns over all the earth. 
And we best demonstrate that when we listen to his word and we obey it. And the main a litmus test for where our heart is, am I being rebellious or am I rejoicing in the Lord, is when I read something in the word of God, do I seek to understand it so that I can obey him? Or do I make excuses and throw up defenses and try to find a way around what he's clearly telling me to do? If your heart rebels at the word of God, your problem is not a misunderstanding of the Bible. I mean, it also is. But it's, it's, a, it's that you're not surrendering your life to the king of your life. So in order to demonstrate and proclaim his kingdom, we first have to submit to the king, and that is Jesus. Okay, next section here. We can wonder at his majesty. So what is this king like? Well, the psalmist tells us, clouds and thick darkness surround him, righteousness and justice at the foundation of his throne. Fire, fire goes before him and consumes his foes on every side. His lightnings light up the world. The earth sees and trembles. Mountains melt before the Lord of all the earth. Not like a super approachable God, right? Fire, smoke, people being consumed, thick clouds, darkness. He's like a volcano. on His throne is like a giant erupting volcano. It's terrifying. My daughter and I were talking about the word awesome yesterday. And she said, uh, like, the word means something. <laughs> and like, the word does mean something. And I, and I looked, looked it up, by the way, and I'm going to read it off here. It says that, um, uh oh, did I not write it down? Oh, I forgot to write it down. Okay, so awesome. <laughs> welcome, welcome to a moment inside of my brain, by the way. I, uh, I'm, I'm a, anyway, a bit of a mess. It means to cause uh, fear or uh, this incredible uh, affection for something. So, but something, when you approach something awesome, it causes something. And what it causes is fear. So when we say the word awesome, it's, now it also means colloquially, like that's something really great. But we, God is an awesome God, surrounded by clouds and darkness. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of his throne. There are not many thrones in history where the, I don't know that any, where righteousness and justice were actually the foundations of them. That his throne sits on something, righteousness and justice. That his righteousness is proclaimed throughout the earth. That his justice is, 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 uh, is worked out in his kingdom. He has a, a holy fire before him that consumes foes on every side. This is straight out of Hebrews. Our God is a consuming fire. He's not to be toyed with. He's not some petty God that we put on a shelf. It doesn't matter what I think about him or what I do. God is God and he reigns and his fire consumes his enemies. And I can like that or not like it, but that's what the Bible says. And his lightnings light up the world, and the whole earth sees and does what? Trembles. When was the last time you trembled before the Lord? Like, I can lift my hands up to him, and we have access to the throne of God. And for us, for the believer, it is a throne of grace. To the unbeliever, it is an unapproachable nightmare. Because it is his righteous majesty. That so much so that mountains melt like wax before him. Just imagine the majestic Rockies, right? Just melting before the presence of the Lord. And then it says, The heavens proclaim his righteousness, and all the peoples see his glory. God has given us an incredible creation to wonder at, to observe. From, from the, the in giant galaxies full of billions of stars, incomprehensibly vast, to the tiny molecules, to uh, watching a, 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 a bee land on a flower or a butterfly fly in the air or a squirrel f uh, jump from tree to tree or a, watch a cat clean itself, right? Or watch a child, watch a baby uh, learn to crawl, watch a teenager learn to be a grown-up. Watch, 
there's so much wonder in the world. When was the last time you were overwhelmed with wonder at the majesty of the Lord by observing his creation? He made us to do that. You've got to, we've got to get out into the world. Get out into nature. Get out and, and put your feet on the ground and observe and enjoy this beautiful creation that God has given us. Instead of complaining yesterday, I probably should have like, gone on a long walk in the woods, right? Like I was, worried, I was complaining because it was so warm. <laughs> it's like it doesn't feel a whole lot like Christmas, whatever that means. I mean, if you live in Florida, this feels like Christmas. But for me, it's supposed to be cold at Christmas, like have a fire in the fireplace. I was not going to do that because it was 80. But I chose instead to sort of grumble about it. And what I should have done is enjoy the time he gave me. Like, so for those of you who went outside and enjoyed it yesterday, like, kudos to you. You're doing really well. But it's part of the reason why I preach sermons is to remind myself what I'm actually supposed to be doing. But two things. How do you wonder at his majesty? One is to just to take time or make time. It's funny how we use the word time, by the way, in Western. We make it. We can save it. We can take it. We can, like, time is money. This is ridiculous. The rest of the world doesn't think like that. But, well, some of it does, but not all of it. But this idea that you need to make time or take time to observe. Observe the world that you're in. It doesn't have to just be nature. Like you can observe a building that someone made. I mean, look at the order. Someone laid those bricks by hand. What does that tell us about the Lord? We have electricity. What is the wonder of electricity? It tells us we can have twinkly lights that shine on stuff. We can project this. Somebody came up with that. A person that the Lord made decided or figured out how to make this projector shine photons that reflect off. It's amazing, right? You can sit in a chair that someone figured out how to build. You can write with a pen. Someone discovered how to make a ballpoint pen. What? I have a Bible printed with paper that I can buy cheaply. That's a wonder. It's a wonder. And there's a world full of wonder if we will just stop and look at it. If we'll just stop and look. So make time to observe God's creation. And then make time to think about it. Make time. Go for a walk, grab a flyer. I know this sounds dumb, but a lot of people have done it in the past. Not me, not just me. Like, take a leaf. And then take it inside and look at it. Look at the structure. Look at the order of it. Look up at the night sky. Go out where you can't see the city lights and look up at the night sky and wonder. Look at a sunset. Look at a sunrise. Look at the moon. Look at the leaves fall. Look at the wind blow. Just open your eyes. And then take time to process it and think about it and release yourself into the wonder of God's majesty. Why is that important? Because it says all peoples have seen his glory or all the people see his glory. If the heavens proclaim the righteousness of the Lord, shouldn't we as his children do it all the more? And point people to nature, point people to the heavens and say, this is proclaiming that there is a God. Romans goes so far as to say that the creation has given no excuse to anyone to deny the existence of God. It's amazing, right? And so make time to wonder at his majesty. So next, moving into verses uh, 7, 8, and 9. Next is to worship him alone. It says, all who worship images or uh, idols or created things are put to shame. And those who boast in idols, worship him, all you gods. So the Hebrew there's are kind of like kind of wacky. So your translation may say something. I say it's wacky, wacky for English speakers. But when it says all who worship images or idols are to be put to shame. So when we worship things that we are not supposed to worship, the result is shame. It always is. Why? Because it's shameful. Because we're not supposed to do that. God created us to worship him alone. And he does not stand by and just say, oh, so you can worship idols, it's fine, it's no big deal. When you're done. No. He says, don't, this is like in the Ten Commandments, right? 
don't worship things that aren't God. Worship God alone. So when you're feeling shame about something, always is another litmus test. When you feel shame, check to see what you're worshiping. Because the believer, yes, there is proper guilt about sin, but shame is not to be our motive. Shame is not to be what drives us to do things. Shame is not supposed to be the clothes that we wear. No, the believer has been clothed in Christ. Not in shame, but in glory and in the majesty of the Most High God. That's the clothes we wear. We're children of light. So when we don't act like it, repent, return to the Lord, and walk in the light. But don't wear the shame around. If you're wearing shame around all the time, you're probably worshiping the wrong thing. It says, those who boast in idols. So in the ancient world, right, idols were little statues, things they made out of wood, stone, gold, silver, whatever. And then people do this today still, but they would have idols, they would worship the idols because they thought that the idol represented a god and they're worshiping the god behind the idol, right? Build temples to them, go worship them, do all kinds of things. Guess what? All the, quote, gods that they're worshiping, they're all going to bow the knee to Jesus. So it doesn't make a whole lot of sense to worship something that's going to be bowing the knee to Jesus. Let's just worship Jesus. So let's get the end run around of this ridiculousness of idolatry, which for the modern person, you are not, maybe you are, maybe you're fashioning things out of gold and putting it up and putting candles up and bowing down before it. Maybe you are. I don't know. If you are, stop it. But if we have other things that we worship, right? Lots of other things that I worship. Uh, Americans worship their comfort. Oh, we worship it. We spend so much of our energy managing our own idol of comfort. We refuse to be uncomfortable. That's why we don't evangelize. It's uncomfortable. Isn't that amazing? <laughs> why we don't evangelize? Because it's uncomfortable. Why? Because we worship the idol of comfort. We worship the idol of pleasure. I don't like doing that because it's hard. It's not pleasurable. Right? It's an idol. Put it up there. Guess what? All of those things, all of the things that we worship, they will all bow down to the Lord. And I'm kind of speaking metaphorically here. But the reality is that we worship all these things that are not worthy of worship. And we don't worship the one who is. So in order to worship him, we first have to reject the things that uh, draw our hearts away from the Lord. So figure out what those things are. And spend some time, after you spend time in nature and figure out how it all works and worship the Lord, then I want you to spend some time thinking, what is it that draws my heart away from the Lord? I've got a whole list of things that draw my heart away from the Lord. And some days those things bug me, some days they don't. But there are things that tend to pull my heart away from him. What are those things? So I want to reject those things that draw my heart away from him. And then look at what he says in uh, verse 8 here. Zion hears and rejoices, and the villagers of Judah are glad because of what? Because of your judgments, O God. When was the last time you rejoiced at God's judgments? But his judgments are the outworking of his kingdom, okay? A king has judgments, and the, those judgments are worked out in his kingdom. So when we read about the judgments of God in the scripture, when we see the judgment of God in the world, and even looking forward to the great judgment, which is terrible and truly awesome, it should cause us to rejoice which I know sounds and doesn't feel right. But when you live, remember Zion and the villages of Judah, it's this great picture of people living in this world, literally surrounded by their enemies. And that God's judgment against their enemies cause them to rejoice. Why? Because you, O Lord, are the most high over all the earth and you're exalted far above all gods. 
we don't serve a God who does what we say. He doesn't have to listen to me. He doesn't have to do anything. He chooses to align himself with his own character. And he never does anything outside of what is right and what is good and what is perfect and what is just and what is righteous. Because he is perfect and he is God. And everything that he says, what I think and what I feel, have to end up aligning themselves with who he is, not with what I feel. So when we see God's judgment, we can rejoice in those things. So we can reject the things that pull our heart away, and then we can rejoice in the activity of his kingdom. When I see his kingdom activity going on, I was speaking with somebody this morning, actually, who's very discerning and praying and listening to what the Lord is doing. When we do those things and we listen, what is it God is doing in the world today? Rejoice in those things. Look for them. Read the news. Read between the lines. See where God is working. Because I promise you, he's at work. He is working to bring his kingdom here. Okay? And we are ambassadors of that kingdom. We live in a kingdom of darkness. But we are ambassadors of light. And so we have to reject the things that dampen our light. I mean, this little light of mine, right? I'm going to let it shine. Put it under a bushel. No, no. I'm not going to let things cover up the light of Jesus. I'm going to uncover those things, lay them aside, and then rejoice in the work of the kingdom as we go about and shine the light in the darkness. Okay, so we can proclaim his kingdom, worship him alone, and wonder at his majesty and worship him alone. And finally, in verses 10, 11, and 12, he says this, Let those who love the Lord hate evil, for he guards the lives of his faithful ones and delivers them from the hand of the wicked. Light is shed, or light is sown. The word there is for sowing seed, right? Uh, light is sown for the righteous and joy or gladness on the upright in heart. So rejoice in the Lord, you who are righteous, and praise his holy name. The final thing I think that we can do that will be helpful in enjoying the Lord is to love what he loves. And if I was to ask you, just take one, if you could follow it down to one word, what does the Lord read the Bible, like Genesis Revelation, what does the Lord love? And I'm going to define love. I'm stealing it from a guy named uh, Bachman that says this, love is an act of the will accompanied by emotion that leads to action on behalf of its object. Okay, I'm going to say that again. This is not mine. It's by, you can Google it. Vody Bakken, he's a speaker and stuff. You can hear him. Love is an act of the will. Not super romantic, but love is an act of the will. Accompanied by emotion that leads to action on the behalf of its object. A wonderful definition of love. An act of the will. It means I can choose to love accompanied by emotion. Emotions follow. Sometimes they're negative, sometimes they're positive. But the emotions follow the thinking, follow the act of the will. If the emotions are in front of the act of the will, they are not going to go very far. It's like when the kids climb out of the car seats and start driving the car. They're going to wreck it. Emotions are like the kids in the back of the car. Yay, they're fun. They make lots of noise. Make things exciting. Boom. They start driving the car. It's all over. You know, I've got a 16-year-old, and I still drive next to him. He's learning. He's doing great. He can now drive the car because he's growing into an adult. But the adults drive the car. So your brain is supposed to drive your life. Your thinking, proper thinking, biblical thinking. And your emotions follow. So love is a choice. Love is an act of the will. Accompanied by emotion. You should feel things when you choose to love. But that it always leads to action on the behalf of the object. God so loved the world that he gave his only son. It was an act of the will that acted on behalf of the object. Who is, in that verse, the world. So if I was going to ask you, what does God love? What does God love? Those people. God loves people. (laughs) 
I mean, he loves people. The only two things will last forever, the word of God and people. That's it. Of course, exclude, I mean, the Lord will obviously last forever, but the only two things that have been given to us, the word of God and people, will last forever. Everything that's ever been written, every building that's ever been built on this planet, everything you've ever worked for and dreamed for, every article of clothing you've ever had, blah, 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 every business you've ever built, every dollar you've ever earned, go away. It's going to go away. But people will last forever. So when I say love what he loves, God loves people. So 1 John 4.19 says that, 4.18, get a little confused, uh, we love him because he first loved us, right? The perfect love casts out fear, for fear is about punishment and judgment. But the love of God comes and it casts out the fear that we have of his judgment. And we are able to love rightly because he first loved us. So it works that God loved us. And then in response to that love, we are supposed to then love the Lord. And how is it that we best demonstrate our love for the Lord? By loving what he loves. And God loves people. So you can love what he loves by loving people, and you will never go wrong. Never. You will never go wrong loving people. Are you going to do that perfectly? No. Because sometimes you'll love them, or you'll do something from selfish motives, and you're not really loving them because you're doing it. But if you're truly loving with the agape love of God, empowered by the Holy Spirit, bearing the fruit of the Spirit, and love and joy and peace and patience, etc., you will never go wrong loving people. Now, you, you have to define that according to the Word of God, I can't say, well, I was just loving that person, or you can't tell me that I can't love that, blah, 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 blah. The world takes God's definitions and twists them for their own means. But we have the, the word of God. God demonstrates his own love toward us in that what? While we were yet sinners, Christ died for the ungodly, right? That's what love is. Love is an act of the will accompanied by emotion that acts on the behalf of the object. So what does that look like? Well, just think of a person. Who just popped into your mind? Love that person well today. Choose to love them. Choose to look at that person and say, what do they need? What does that person need today? God has given me the opportunity, empower me with the Holy Spirit to love a person well today. Think of a person, or whoever you run into, they're going to change all day long. Think about what is this person needing right now? How can I demonstrate my love for them? I'm going to choose to love them. An emotion will follow. But what can I do to love this person well? How can I meet a need that they have? And if we do that day in and day out, day in and day out, with the, not because we fear God's judgment, but because we're filled with his spirit and we are responding to his grace, it's going to be a pretty good life. That's why I put it on the sign. Love God, love people, follow Jesus. It's not, once again, very complicated. God loves us so that we can love him in return and we can demonstrate that by loving other people. Okay, so... What are the end results of all of these things? Oh, let me say this. In verse 10, uh, there's evil in the world. It's bad, and we should hate it. We shouldn't hate a lot of things. We should hate evil, and we should be able to see what evil is because we know what goodness is. I shouldn't know what evil is because I've experienced evil. I can know there's lots of evil in the world. I've never been a serial killer. Lord, help me. But I know that that's evil. I don't have to experience it to know it's evil. I experience goodness. I experience the good of God, his love for life, his creation for humanity, how precious every human is to him. And in that way, I can see that being a serial killer excuse me, is evil. I don't have to experience a drunken debauchery. I'm not sure what debauchery is, but something with drunkenness, those are combined. I don't have to experience that to know that it's evil. 
I don't have to experience uh, cheating on Jenny to know that it's evil. It's evil. How do I know that it's evil? Because the Word of God tells me it's evil. It's to be faithful to Jenny. We can experience goodness and righteousness and truth and life and light through the Word of God and through prayer and through the life of the body, so much so that when I see evil, I can hate it. But not to hate it just for the point of hating it. Look what it says. Let those who love the Lord hate evil. Why? Because he guards the loves of his faithful ones and delivers them from the hand of what? The wicked. What does he guard us from? Evil. He guards us from evil. And he delivers us from the hand of the wicked, which are people who are doing evil. There's evil in the world. There's a lot of it. God protects us from it. Why would we then go and engage in what he's protecting us from? It's like as a parent, you try to protect your kids from things that you know are not good for them, right? Things you know that will destroy them. I'm not going to give my kid heroin so that he knows heroin's bad. That would be dumb. That would hurt my child. I know that it's evil, so I guard and protect them from those things. And we as children of the king should know the things he's guarding us from, the things he protects us from, that we should hate those things. The New Testament goes and expounds on that further and says to hate what is evil and cling to what is good. So do that. Cling to what is good. And then it says light is uh, sown for the righteous and joy. So who is the sower and what is he sowing? He's sowing light and he's sowing joy. When you sow something... It produces whatever is sown, right? You stick apples in the ground, it makes apple trees. You sow corn, it makes corn. You sow tomatoes, you get the point. But if you sow light, what is supposed to fruit up? Light. If you sow joy or gladness, what is supposed to show up? Joy and gladness. So I may ask you a question. Is your life full of light and joy and gladness? I have to ask myself that question every day. Ask my sweet children. I've got a grumpy side. It comes out. And I'm not always glad. Sometimes I'm very unglad. Be a kind word for it. Just grumpy. Grumbling? Blah. Grumbling got the, got the Israelites stuck in the desert for 40 years. Like, I want no part of that. But light is shit. So that the Lord, you understand that he is sowing light and joy and gladness into our hearts. He's doing it. He's constantly doing it. That as we hate what is evil and cling to what is good, he gives us the light and the gladness we need to be the people he wants us to be in this world. And then finally, to close up the sandwich here, to rejoice in the Lord, you who are righteous, and then to praise his holy name. So as you go about this week, this in-between week, I want you to think about proclaiming his kingdom. I want you to think about worship, uh, wondering at his majesty, worshiping him alone and loving what he loves, applying what, is in this verse, uh, in these verses, in this psalm, so that we can better know the Lord, so that we can better walk in Him, so that we can enjoy Him forever. Like if you don't know what to do this week, spend it enjoying the Lord. And I promise you it will be a really good week. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your great loving kindness toward us, that you are indeed king over all the earth, that you sit on a throne of righteousness and justice. And Lord, we just cry out that we live in a world so empty of righteousness, so empty of justice. And yet that is what your throne is based upon. And so I pray that you would help us to live out the life of members of your kingdom here on earth, to be ambassadors in a dark place, to be soldiers behind enemy lines who are filled with your spirit to do your work here on planet earth. Help us, Lord Jesus, to 
to rejoice, to be people full of light and gladness. Help us to entrust our hearts to you and to love other people deeply. Help us to marvel at the wonder of your creation and worship you with what you're teaching us. Above all of it, Lord Jesus, would we be people who bow our knee to our King, who surrender our hearts and our minds and our wills to you and ask you to help us to be empowered to live out the life that you have for us as individuals, as spouses, as members of a family, as members of a church, as members of a community and a country and a world. Would you help us, Lord Jesus, to glorify you and to enjoy you forever? And it is in that that we ask in your risen name. Amen. Let's all stand together and seal these words in our heart by praising the God from whom all blessings flow. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him, all creatures here below. Praise Him above the heavenly host. Praise Maybe my favorite song of all time. So, well, it's like we're at a wedding here. Just notice this. We're like, nobody's friends with the groom and everybody's the friends of the bride. So uh, anyway, um, go this week, study the word of God, spend time enjoying his creation, spend time enjoying this, this in-between week. God's given it to us to glorify him and to enjoy him in it. And while you do that, please go in peace. Amen. <laughs>